0: There is something happening in Missouri. About an hour outside of Kansas City, the body of the founder of the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles, a Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, has been exhumed for reburial in its final resting place after three years on the ground. The other nuns at the Abbey are reported to have said that they had been warned that Lancaster would just be bones by now, years after burial in a simple wooden coffin. However, Upon her exhumation, the nuns were met with a corpse that did not look as they expected it to look. Despite the crack in the coffin lid and a thick layer of mold on her body, Lancaster's habit and rosary were intact. Her body had not been reduced to bones or to pieces. Lancaster's body was deemed incorrupt, a Catholic term meaning a body that has resisted the process of natural decomposition. Brie Campbell writes for Tecton Ministries that an incorrupt saint is one whose body experiences little, no, or delayed decomposition after death. It is believed that divine intervention has allowed a number of human bodies to forgo the normal decomposition process as a symbol of the deceased holiness while alive on earth and can also be perceived as the person's mortal remains being prepared for the resurrection of the body at the end of time. Among famous incorruptibles are Catherine of Siena, Rita, Vincent de Paul, Bernadette of Lourdes, John Bosco, Francis Xavier Cabrini, and Padre Pio. The thing is, (laughs) I have seen pictures of Sister Wilhelmina's body, and that is a body that is rotting. It is a misnomer to say that the incorrupt saints are fully incorrupt, or that they always remain so. Some are partially incorrupt, only retaining a few vital organs in their original states, and some are incorrupt for a time until moved to a different location where their bodies will begin to decay. These bodies also invariably undergo various treatments to further preserve them once they're discovered. Um, Many are coated with chemicals, and most saints will receive a mask- Made of wax to give them a rosy cheeked sleeping face. I suppose to save the viewers from seeing what actually happens to a human face years or sometimes centuries after death. The writer Elizabeth Harper says that ideas of incorruptibility often hinge more on the term pliability than the idea that someone just looks like they laid down to go to sleep. They're pliable mummies, they're good smelling corpses it's a miracle. In a 2014 article published by the Order of the Good Death, Harper wrote, at its core, incorruptibility only means that the body was left in a state that should have led to putrefaction or the liquefaction of guts, but did not. Sister Wilhelmina's body is not bones. That is true. But that is a body that is rotting. That is a body that has flattened. That. It's a body that is obviously dead. The church has not yet determined if this is true incorruptibility. There are certainly many factors that would slow decomposition and many things that could alter the way a dead body looks. Incorruptibility is a sign of holiness and is counted as a positive tick in the saint column when a person is under determination from the Vatican. But sainthood is complicated and A fresh corpse does not a saint make. I was sent articles about Sister Wilhelmina by at least a a dozen people on the day the news broke. It was bad timing for me. In truth, death, the, the dead body, has been giving me a terrible stomach ache. I keep thinking about the phenomenon in Crows that... Upon seeing the dead body of another crow, they will be roused into a frenzy of sexual energy. Seeing a dead body makes them emotional, makes them want to procreate immediately. Proximity to death and to the dead body has made me hungry and tired and given me a stomachache that I just can't get rid of. What is really hard to get across is how hopelessly fast and impossibly slow it all was. My grandmother, 90 years old, first goes into the hospital at the beginning of April because she refuses to eat or drink. We do not know that this is the first step because no one tells us so. By the beginning of May, she's in hospice care and her apartment becomes a hive of constant activity. 24 hours a day, there are people milling in and out. Hospice workers, hospice nurses, nurses from the facility where she lives, nursing assistants, chaplains. There are... Medications to give, paperwork to sign, wounds to dress. Everyone around us, better acquainted with death, can see it before we can. I visit every day, usually in the hours between the care shifts. But I arrive on a Friday at around two p.m. and I don't leave for the next four days, except to shower and feed the animals. My mother has been there the entire time, and her partner has been back and forth. I have tried to do my reading. I have tried to read all the articles. I've tried to come prepared, and when the hospital bed was moved into her living room, I knew it was time to amass research. And it would not be unfair to say that for the past eight years, maybe longer, I have been involved in the cultural study of the dead body. The focus of my graduate work and consequently the majority of my studio practice was on what we can learn about the space the dead human body occupies culturally through looking at the places that dead animals interact with us socially. I obviously can't use a dead body to make work, so I use the dead body of an animal and I see how that message changes in translation. Still, in doing my readings on the process of dying, trying trying to take both a compassionate and a distance or detached view of things, I find myself engulfed in totally new information. I understand what it means to show a photograph of a dead body on the news, and I understand the manifold complications of displaying a dead body in a museum. I'm familiar with debates around the position or the inclusion of a dead body in contemporary art. I can tell you all the ways um, dead bodies have been handled historically, and I can I can talk at length about the funeral industry in America. Still, the, the dying, the, the physically dying, was new and was strange. There are three stages to dying, the articles tell me, and each one is distinct. The first begins as the body no longer requires food or water. It is winding down its energy and conserving Eating becomes distressing and uncomfortable, and the dying person can begin to withdraw emotionally and socially. During the second stage of dying, the body begins to detach itself from the surroundings. The dying person will become less responsive, may stop talking, responding, or moving. Their circulation will slow and becomes focused exclusively on the functions of the major organs. The final stage of dying involves significant changes to the dying person's body. At this stage, hallucinations may be present. The person can or may interact with things that other people are unable to see, may raise their hands, may no longer be able to hear or see other people in the room. Their lungs can no longer clear fluids, so a loud rattling sound in the throat may be present. The death rattle. It's a, it's a gurgling sound. Their breathing will become inconsistent with long pauses between breaths, and their temperatures will fluctuate, their blood pressure will drop. Eventually, they will stop breathing entirely. These stages can take any amount of time, and there is no assistance to slow or quicken them. Medication may be given for pain or discomfort or disorientation, but the body is doing what the body is doing, and it will do it no matter any intervention. There is no U-turn. There is no miracle. On that Friday night, my mother and I are sure that it is going to happen. We are sure that she is going to die that night And how lucky, we think, that my sister and my cousins and uncle will avoid having to see this, will avoid having to be in this room. Witnessing this death can be something held in by my mother and I, and they won't have to hear the rattling or how loud it is or see her reach out her hands, grasping at things we can't see. Over the night, her hallucinations grow larger, grander, and she speaks to people we can't see. The nurses give her some anti-anxiety medication for it, but I can tell that she's having big emotions, big reactions. My mother and I sit and we speculate who it might be, who she's responding to. My, my grandfather, maybe, her mother, her, her beloved brother. By Saturday morning, her eyes have closed and her breathing has shallowed, but still she breathes. My sister flies down from San Francisco on Saturday afternoon, and she brings me a copy of the Nick Cave book about grief and another copy of Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, because I am always in a position of loaning out a copy and never owning one. We sit around the bedside, my mother, my sister, my uncle, and my mother's partner. We take turns sleeping in the bed in the apartment. Sometimes we will sit in the other room and read. Sometimes we play music my grandmother liked. Sometimes we listen to NPR. Sometimes we just sit in the white noise of the oxygen machine's churning. My mother and I have a continuous debate, should we hold her hand? Should would she like the comfort and the and the attention or would it be anchoring her, something some kind of stimulus to keep her inside her body? We hold her hand anyway. Sometimes we speak quietly, sometimes we talk about the news, about my sister's job at the bookstore. I wonder often what this is doing to me, to, to my mom, to my sister, this this watching. There is no doubt that we will do it, stay by my grandmother's side until she dies, but I wonder how this is factoring into our already complicated quilt of grief from the past few years. The death is, is one thing, and I... I feel like I know how to handle and react to that, but I I wonder about the watching. Saturday and then Sunday pass with no change. Hospice nurses come in and out over and over. And we have moments where we think, surely this is it. Surely this is the end. And, and surely we just, we can't keep going. Her body simply cannot continue on. And then by Monday morning, I I become a little hysterical. My grandmother has not eaten any food, not any nutrition, since Wednesday. Her body has not had a drop of water since Friday evening. It's, it's Monday. Still, she breathes. Still, her lungs pump in and out. No longer the loud rattle of the dying, but a faint thing. Just barely there at all. We are at a loss for what to do watching her we wash her face and her hands we brush her hair cut her nails just her blankets sometimes for hours we will time out the space between breaths and see if it means anything we record her heartbeats track her temperature which changes wildly we talk about my dad a lot and i think as surely as my sister must think how this experience is fitting into The landscape of my experience with grief. My sister tells me over and over this, this long drawn out experience, this this incredibly slow winding down. It is so different from the way my father died alone in a hospital during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic hooked and then unhooked to a seemingly endless parade of machines. It seems unfair to call them both the same event. It seems like an inherent failure of language to call both of these things dying. The euphemism for dying used by professionals is transitioning. Sometimes we'll point out a new symptom that my grandmother has to a nurse, someone who's come in to check on her, and they will invariably say, well, she is transitioning. They mean here that the body is transitioning into death from one stage into the other, alive to unalive. In this transition, there is a finality, a destination, an arrival point. But in my life, in lives of the people close to me, probably in many of your lives too, the word transition and transitioning particularly in reference to a body holds different connotations. I think about this every time they come in. We ask questions, and the answer we receive is that she is transitioning. I make a joke that she's gotten very progressive in her old age. But I also think about how it is being said as if it was ongoing. She is transitioning, and the transitioning will be completed. I guess I would use this word too, transitioned, as opposed to actively transitioning in reference to the people I know, but... The end point here seems much less clear. When have they stopped transitioning? When is it? Is it finished? When is the end point, the goalpost? I have the copy of the Argonauts that my sister brought me in my purse for the entire time I'm at my grandmother's apartment, and my mind wanders back and forth to it. For me, the primary conceit of the Argonauts is that the body can change phenomenally. And the core of the person is immutable, but changes too. Although I don't necessarily think that that's the point of the book. Over the course of the text, Maggie Nelson describes her partner, Harry Dodge's transitioning and her own pregnancy. It reflects in the way their bodies and their identif- identities shift and mutate how love is the active and participatory through line in all of it. Nelson emphasizes the slipperiness of declaring queer identity, of announcing the beginning or the end to the transition of identity. I think of what she writes about Catherine Opie, that the binary of normative versus transgressive is unsustainable, along with the demand that anyone live a life that's all one thing. Early on in the book, Nelson writes, a day or two after my love pronouncement now Feral with vulnerability, I sent you the passage from Roland Barts on Roland Barts, in which Barts describes how the subject who utters the phrase, I love you, is like the Argonaut renewing his ship during a voyage without changing its name. Just as the Argo's parts may be replaced over time, but the boat is still called the Argo, whenever love utters the phrase, I love you. Its meaning must be renewed by each use as the very task of love and of language is to give to one and the same phrase inflections which will be forever new. By Sunday morning, it is clear to all that we are circled around an empty body. It's hard to say how we all know. She is gone and the body in front of us is totally empty. Her hand will move, and we all know it's just electricity. She is gone. I start unconsciously referring to her body as it and have to apologize every time, but it isn't callousness. It's the same part of my brain that can recognize human faces and clouds and tree bark. The same part of my brain that can recognize the human and the inhuman that feels increasingly itchy around AI. I know in an... Innate and a reptile part of me that this body is no longer housing a human. By Tuesday morning, finally, the batteries wind down to nothing, and my grandmother is dead. I stand in the doorway at 7 a.m. that morning, and I watch the mortuary attendant work. My mother and sister and uncle are drinking coffee and eating the toast that the complex has brought us. I watch the mortuary attendant, and I think about the secrecy, the surprise, the mystery that this process has felt shrouded in. He wraps her body meticulously in a very practiced configuration, and his voice is hushed when he talks to us. He places a black cover over her before he wheels her out, and I suppose this is so no one can tell what he is carting, but everyone knows. How could they not know? Five days is a long time to die. Five days is a long time to watch someone actively dying. When I look at the saints, it is so easy to find stories of the quick and the merciless and the blood-soaked death. The bodies are everywhere. The the corpses are easy to find. It's harder to find stories about the slow death, the very gradual decline into nothingness. It's easier, I think, to write about someone being ripped to shreds than the way a body can decompose while its heart is still beating. I've been looking at photos of Sister Wilhelmina's body with Increasing regularity. And I keep rereading the Catholic News Agency's article about the nuns finding her exhumed body, and it's it's been making me sick to my stomach. The article is full of witness testimony saying things like it was miraculous to see her body in perfect condition after her body was in the grave for close to four years. But then the article also describes Sister Wilhelmina's face being covered in a thick mask of mold that the other nuns had to scrape off of her. It describes the way her eyes had been forced into her head from the pressure of the soil, and it it describes how the nuns had to craft a, ma- a mask made of wax for her. It had to cover her hands in wax because her body had lost so much volume and its features had been so corrupted. This is not a body in perfect condition. Her fingers have been gnarled into strange positions and melted together with wax. A rosary has been placed under her hands, but it is clear that she is not holding it. It is it is clear what she is. Socks have been placed over her feet, and a little sign has been printed out and placed near her body to remind visitors to be gentle when touching her. They quote a visitor who has come to see the body, saying, in a world right now that's really struggling with so many false gods, we are seeing glimpses of evidence that God is there. Those of us who are faithful don't need evidence, but when we see it, we know it. When I think about the visitors to Sister Wilhelmina's body crying at the miracle of incorruption, when I think about my recent unexpected time spent in the presence of a dead and a dying body, I think the tears of those pilgrims are perhaps misplaced. I, I do not think that the body of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster is a miracle, but I do think it is a miracle in America in 2023 to stand and observe at length a dead body in front of you. It is a miracle to touch a dead body, It's a miracle to witness something that is hidden and confusing from us. I think the visitors are crying because they are staring at a dead body. They They are touching a dead body. The miracle is the body, and the miracle is the looking. In my art practice, I have often cited the writer Giovanni Alloy as my reasoning for using taxidermy. Several years ago, I attended a conference on the use of animals in contemporary art in which he said that animal taxidermy allows an audience to have meaningful emotional connection with an animal because we are able to hold prolonged eye contact with it. In the wild, animals do not stare back at us, but this is something that we're used to with our pets. I can walk into any room of my house and my cats look at me and they offer a little cheer up of hello. And looking at a piece of taxidermy, I can regard, and I can be regarded, even though I know the eyes I am looking into are glass, and, and I know that the animal is dead. But still, that connection is meaningful, emotional. In her article for The Order of the Good Death, Elizabeth Harper insists that Catholics are not trying to trick you with the bodies of their incorrupt saints. They are not trying to make them look as if they are sleeping, or perfect, or undead. They are just dead bodies that have not rotted as they should behold them. In Missouri, a woman stands before a corpse and says, It was beautiful. At first, it was just a little unreal, but then as I gazed at her, tears started coming, and I just knew it was for real and very, very meaningful. In California, I hold my grandmother's hand as her organs decay in her body, and... My head hurts and my stomach hurts, and I listen as my mother gets up, heats a cup of coffee in the microwave. Behold them. This is All Miracles or Strange. My name is Liz Hamilton, and you can find me on social media under my name. My theme song is an altered version of an 1888 wax cylinder recording of Handel's Israel in Egypt, one of the earliest known recordings of the human voice. I want to say thank you for your patience with me during my unexpected break. Something sort of funny, I think, <laughs> about your grief project being interrupted by death, I guess. If you'd like to read notes or see images from All Miracles Are Strange, you can sign up for my substack, although I think I'll probably be a little bit behind just because of everything happening. Um, and if you'd like to support my work, both this podcast and my studio practice, which is recently picking up steam um you can find me on patreon special and sincere thanks to Leshi who signed up for the ten dollar peer on my pay- tier of my patreon um your support all of your support is absolutely invaluable to my process and i am so grateful thank you